Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Welcome to another episode of Broadway Nation, the podcast that tells the remarkable story of the Broadway musical and the immigrant, Jewish, queer, and black artists who invented it. My guest again today is author Maya Cantu, who returns to discuss her book, Grease Paint Puritan, Boston to 42nd Street in the queer backstage novels of Bradford Ropes. In this terrific new book, Maya reclaims the life and work of Broadway dancer-turned-novelist and screenwriter Bradford Ropes, with a central focus on his three long-forgotten backstage novels, 42nd Street, on which the classic film and stage adaptation are based, Go Into Your Dance, a thinly disguised fictional version of the career of Broadway showman George White and his scandals, and the book will focus on today his 1933 novel Stage Mother, all of which were inspired by Ropes' own experiences as a gay man in show business during the 1920s. If you missed the first part of our conversation, you may want to catch up with that before listening to this one. Maya Cantu teaches on the drama faculty at Bennington College and is also the author of American Cinderella on the Broadway musical stage, Imagining the Working Girl from Irene to Gypsy. And as you will hear, the parallels between Stage Mother and Gypsy are striking. And as always, I want to send out a heartfelt thanks to our patron club members for their generous support, with a special shout-out today to longtime patrons Juan J. Neumeister and Ruth Oberg. If you would like to help support the creation of this podcast, please stay tuned to the end of the episode, where there'll be information about how you, too, can become a patron. Here we go. So let's continue where you were taking us a moment ago to Hollywood, because the novel becomes successful, but the main thing that it accomplishes most for Ropes is being sold to the movies, becoming the biggest movie musical to date, and revitalizing the world of movie musicals. Yeah, absolutely. So it's a smash. 42nd Street takes Warner Brothers out of a financial hole. Saves the studio, right? Yes, essentially saves the studio. Yeah. Yeah. His book gives rise to this huge musical hit that, again, kind of revives the movie musical. And he doesn't even take much credit for that. He's characterized in newspaper profiles as a pretty modest person who didn't like to boast or brag too much about that. So he doesn't necessarily claim all the credit that I think he might have. And of course, you have to give a huge amount of credit to Lloyd Bacon, to Busby Berkeley's iconic choreography that made that movie what it is. But he certainly had a role in that too. But you're right. After 42nd Street, it does open his options up in Hollywood. You know, around 1934, there's more censorship with the production code. And around that time, he stops writing his backstage novels. Go Into Your Dance is 1934. That's the last of the backstage 
stage trilogy. He publishes a book later in 1950 called Mr. Tilly Takes a Walk with Val Burton, who's become his screenwriting collaborator for many years. So he stays in Hollywood. He works on a film adaptation of Stage Mother, and he co-writes the screenplay with John Meehan. So if you want to get a sense of a really faithful ropes adaptation from one of the novels, if you can get a copy of Stage Mother, it's easier to get certainly than the novel. Because he co-wrote the screenplay, it is pretty faithful to the book, although it kind of sentimentalizes the ending a bit, but it's still um, a really good film adaptation. Then there's a film adaptation of Go Into Your Dance that he doesn't write the screenplay for, and it's only kind of loosely connected to the source novel, and that stars Al Jolson. And has some horrifying elements in it. It does have some horrifying (laughs) elements. Yes, so Jolson's in his expected blackface in Go Into Your Dance, in which Ropes did not write the screenplay for, but there are some elements that are drawn from the novel. And there's a really fascinating discourse on race in the backstage novels as well, and cultural appropriation that I go into. But as far as that adaptation, that's not necessarily so much ropes. But then he stays in Hollywood, and he's writing musical westerns for Roy Rogers and Gene Autry, and he's writing a lot of musicals, mostly for Republic Studios, but again, for Columbia, for MGM, for various studios. And he's quite successful as a screenwriter from the mid-30s up into 1950. He's writing some TV as well. He didn't like writing for TV, so at about that point, the screenwriting career ends. But he stays in Hollywood. When Hollywood is changing so much at that point, too, it was sort of the end of an era as we get to the 50s. Yes, very much so. Let's talk through a little bit more of his, we'll come back to his biography. I want to go back, though, to while he's in Hollywood during a significant part of it, we talked about his being seen out in public and being talked about with Queenie Smith. But at the same time, he's living with a man rather openly in Hollywood at a time when that became more and more problematic, I'm assuming, although by the time we get to the war, that man is dead. But during the 30s, a major part of his career, he has a boyfriend. He does. And it's very hard when you're going back into the show business histories to say definitively uh, boyfriend when the newspapers are discussing this man as the secretary or the friend, but it's pretty clear. He was in a relationship for a good six or seven years with a man named Roswell Jolly Black, who was also from Seattle, who was an organist. I don't know exactly how they met, maybe in vaudeville. They meet in the early 30s and they're in a relationship until, I don't want to give too much away necessarily, but there is a sad ending for Roswell Black that was very saddening to learn about. But they were together for a good six or seven years. They're regularly written about. They love to go to the Club Bally in Hollywood, which was operated by a fascinating, quite body nightclub entertainer named Russ Fletcher. So they're hanging out with Brett, who did some very openly gay songs that are a lot of fun to listen to. They're out at the Club Bally as part of this queer social circle. And the newspaper reporters are, oh, there's Bradford Ropes with Roswell Black and Patsy Kelly or Peggy Fears. But they're also, oh, there's Bradford Ropes and Queenie Smith. And there they are canoodling again, these lovebirds. He's both out with Roswell Black, his romantic partner, in public, going to parties, going to nightclubs. But he is also doing this kind of simultaneous lavender romance, it appears, with Queenie Smith. And maybe having a little bit of fun with teasing the gossip columnists. I'm sure making as gay men needed to do in Hollywood in those days, they needed to manage the publicity around them. And they were living in the same house together. They were. They had an apartment in Beverly Hills together. I also found it interesting that you documented he takes him home for Thanksgiving to Boston (laughs) with him. 
<laughs> he does. I found a clipping that he motored home from New York to Quincy with an aunt and with Roswell. Here's my good friend or here's my secretary. But who knows? Who yeah. knows what his parents made of that? But yeah, it was very clear from the research that these two men were in a loving relationship for some time, however much newspapers wanted to call the relationship something else. But it's clear. Newspapers reporting what they were told the relationship was as well. I found in his, I think, high school yearbook, a piece that Bradford Ropes considered Cary Grant one of his best friends around 1936-1937. So I wish I'd found more there. And we know a lot more about Cary Grant and his relationship with Randolph Scott. Exactly. But a lot of very similar elements in terms of managing that. Managing that, yes. Yes, exactly. And I think at one point, Cary Grant was linked romantically to Queenie Smith as well. A little bit of a small circle with that. She was the go-to girl, I guess, for that. (laughs) (laughs) In a fun way. I think so. So one thing I wasn't totally clear about, is he writing these novels while he's also in Hollywood, or are they two separate? Does he write the three novels and then go to Hollywood? Seems like he went out there to work. There's an overlap. There's an overlap period, because he writes Stage Mother in 1933. By then, he's already in Hollywood. And he worked in a very early draft of 42nd Street. Of course, he didn't make it to the final cut, but he did work on an early draft. And then he stays in Hollywood and co-writes the screenplay of Stage Mother as well. The novel of Stage Mother had already come out in 1933. So there's an overlap period where he's both writing his backstage novels and he's writing screenplays. Around 1935, though, he's pretty much exclusively writing screenplays. I say that, though, I did find in you know my research mentions of a couple of novels he wrote that did not get published. The most kind of tantalizing is a Hollywood back studio novel, you might call it, called Preview that he wrote in the early 40s. And it was compared to like the gossip columnist said, it's similar to 42nd Street. It provides a picture of the motion picture industry as a kind of collective. So I think he took a kind of 42nd Street Grand Hotel approach to Hollywood movie making. And unfortunately, I have no idea of what became of that manuscript, but it sounds like it would have been fabulous. But he did continue to write novels while he was in Hollywood. But by then, he'd pretty much shifted into his work as a screenwriter. Yeah, you tantalized me with the names of those unfinished novels as well, but I assume they were lost. As far as I know, maybe I hope, I can only hope they'll turn up one of these days. Somebody will find them, yeah. Yes. So let's talk about that second novel now, Stage Mother, which is the one which will be least known by anyone because, as you said, it's really hard to get your hands on. It has not been republished like the other two. I'm hoping that we will see it any day now, hopefully, maybe, but I'd love to read that novel. It's also a film I've never seen. I think I'll represent a lot of the audience in being that I'm coming to this with no knowledge of it other than your excellent synopsis of it in your book. Tell us what is Stage Mother all about? I'm assuming it comes from the Gus Edwards background that he yes. had, that we talked yes. about earlier. Mm-hmm. He had this experience. He was not a child when he was 19, I think, when he was 18 or the, 19. 18 or 19, but he's surrounded by children and their stage mothers. <laughs> yes. Ropes has kind of a, an ambivalent or maybe fraught relationship to stage mothers. Yeah, he certainly would have seen many of them while he was touring with the Gus Edwards troops and all kinds of stage children. And there were also kind of constant battles with the Jerry Society to protect, you know, child labor laws. But certainly he saw many types of stage mothers. If we go back to 42nd Street, the novel, another character who was cut from the film is a stage mother named Mrs. Blair, who was determined to get her young daughter, Polly, who's a toe dancer, a role in Pretty Lady. So Polly and Mrs. Blair are cut from the 1933 42nd Street. And Mrs. Blair isn't necessarily a flattering depiction of a stage mother. She's really willing to go to any lengths to get Polly a role. So fast forward to 1934, when Ropes writes his novel, Stage Mother. And in my opinion, we get a much more kind of nuanced and three-dimensional picture 
of the stage mother, who at the time was already this stereotype of like relentlessly determined woman vicariously living out her own ambitions on the lives of her children. So that archetype was already well established. In Stage Mother, we get a character named Kitty Lorraine, who starts out in vaudeville after all of these twists, you know, is no longer able to perform in vaudeville, which is really Ropes' comment on ageism in the industry. Essentially, he shows Kitty's now seen as too old to keep up her career in vaudeville. She's probably like 30, right? But she's washed up. She has a young daughter named Shirley, and Kitty becomes this really kind of relentless stage mother who's determined after kind of prying Shirley away from these puritanical relatives in Boston, it's a real Boston novel, to make Shirley a Broadway star. And if this all sounds familiar, I think there's quite a bit of resonance with Gypsy in the characters of Mama Rose or Rose and Kitty Lorraine in the way they are so ambitious for their daughters to become stars. So she's a really vivid character. And Ropes characterizes Kitty, yes, as relentless, as willing to do anything to make Shirley a star. But also he really shows the forces of sexism and ageism and puritanism that kind of turn Kitty Lorraine into this more kind of scary idea of the stage mother. You know, it's a really wonderful novel. It's incredibly hard to get. You know, I just looked it up recently and it goes for hundreds of dollars on like eight yeah. books. And I really hope it comes back into print. It's really interesting to compare to Gypsy, I think. And again, Ropes was performing with Gus Edwards at a time when Rose Havick was being a bit of a stage mother herself with her daughters. So the characters in the novel would be happening at the same exact period as More Rose or less. And Louise and June are in vaudeville. Yeah, the 20s. In the 20s. Yeah, because Ropes, as Billy Bradford, was with the Edwards Troop around 1923, a little later, actually, uh, 1924, 1925. He's in an Edwards review called The Fountains, Fountain of Youth of 1925 as an 18-, 19-year-old. The time period overlaps. I think Rose is there a little bit later, but more or less the same time. But yeah, certainly the beginning of that story, I think, is around that time. By the time June is leaving, at least in the events of the musical, the Depression has hit. Yeah. But yeah. it's roughly the same period. Roughly. But this novel is 30 years before the musical Gypsy is written. And it's interesting. Ropes and Julie Stein were collaborators. I don't know how closely they worked together, but they worked together on seven films for Republic Studios movie musicals, where Julie Stein was quite a prolific Hollywood songwriter before all of his great Broadway hits. There was some crossed paths between Julie Stein and Bradford Ropes, and I almost wonder if Stein or Arthur Lawrence or members of the Gypsy creative team get a hold of it, and maybe there's a little bit of kind of inspiration. Gypsy is obviously Gypsy Rosalie's memoir, an adaptation of that, but it's interesting to put them side by side. Very interesting. And in Stage Mother as well, there are a number of gay characters. There are. Don't go away. Broadway Nation will be back right after this quick break. Hi, this is David Armstrong. And even here in Seattle, warmer, sunnier days are on their way. So it's time to fuel up for them and meet your wellness goals with Factors No Prep, No Mess Meals. Thanks to Factors' menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, Keto, or my favorite, Vegetarian, Factors' fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. So what are you waiting for? Kickstart that new healthy routine with 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week. 
so you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can crush those wellness goals with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make everyday delicious from breakfast to dessert with restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. With no shopping, prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. With Factor, you enjoy effortless support for your lifestyle, choosing from six menu preferences that help you manage calories, maximize protein intake, avoid meat, or simply eat well-balanced meals. Here's what you do. Head to factormeals.com BN50 and use code BN50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code BN50 at factormeals.com BN50 as in Broadway Nation 50, and you'll get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Do it today. Talk about that. Who are those characters? How do they fit into this world? And what is their relationship? Well, one of the gay characters stays in the film, fascinatingly. This is kind of 1934, the film version. So we're right at the end of that pansy craze era where we actually get to see gay characters on film and we know that they're gay. So there's a dance teacher. Right at the end of the pre-code era. Right well. at the end. Yeah. yeah before the, the production. The movie was code. made probably before. Just code before changes. that yeah, the yeah. code changes. Yeah. So there's a dance teacher named Mr. Sterling Fritz. Sterling, who's definitely coded as quite queer. But in the novel, we get a deeper look at, again, kind of gay life backstage and gay male characters. And here in Stage Mother, we get a character named Jack Thomas, who's a dancer. And when Shirley Lorraine kind of starts her rise as a young Broadway star, she also becomes the mistress of the mayor, who's based on Jimmy Walker. There's a lot of kind of political stuff in the novel that's really fascinating with that Jimmy Walker political story. But anyway, to go back to Shirley, she is befriended by a dancer named Jack Thomas, who is characterized by ropes as pretty much an openly gay dancer with a kind of acid tongue, a camp wit. He becomes a great friend to Shirley as well as her dance teacher. And then he has a loose tongue and he has a way of kind of gossiping. Gossip is a big theme in this novel as it is in 42nd Street. And he starts to gossip a little too loosely about Shirley's affair with the mayor. And it becomes quite dangerous for Jack. How much can I say without too many sports. I guess nobody's read the novel. Nobody's so. read the book, so you got to tell us. Yeah. Right, right. So Jack Jack is murdered by a homophobic gangster in a really quite disturbing scene where the mayor basically countenances this political murder. The mayor is characterized as quite homophobic and the gangster, or the political boss rather, it's actually a political boss who's kind of the puppet of the mayor. Or vice versa. Right, right. Um, <laughs> so he's working with the gangsters and ultimately Jack is murdered by a homophobic gangster who is thinking he was a degenerate pervert. You know, it's mercy to get rid of him. Mercy in God's eyes to get rid of him. So again, Ropes is really commenting in a quite unsettling way about the levels and the layers of homophobia in politics, in society, in show business. But Jack is a wonderful character. He's got a great wit. He's not afraid to speak truth to power, but it ultimately leads to his demise in the novel. And the way he characterizes the friendship with Shirley. Shirley really loves Jack. And once that murder happens, Shirley is kind of awakened to this kind of really horrible political corruption in 20s New York. So Stage Mother, there's a lot going on in Stage Mother. It's, you know, it's very much a backstage story. It's about Kitty Lorraine and her relentless determination to turn Shirley 
Broadway into a Broadway star to the point of kind of pimping out her daughter to the mayor. <laughs> but it's also a real kind of critique of what Rope saw as a corrupt political system in 20s New York. He came from something of a political family as well. And that's interesting. His grandfather had actually been mayor of Orange, New Jersey. So he actually had an inside knowledge, I think, of politics that he weaves into this. It's a really fascinating look at New York in the 20s at a time that's very mythologized. We think of Jimmy Walker as this debonair playboy mayor and what a permissive and fun and liberated time it was. But Ropes is saying there's a darker side to this. This is a time in which to be a gay man and to be open about it, to be a woman who's flouting sexual mores is dangerous. And he's kind of giving us a counter mythology to the more familiar story of Jazz Age Manhattan. And that Romana Clay aspect of that with Jimmy Walker is so clear in the novel, although he makes him yes. the mayor of Newark or <laughs> Newark. A, a, a Jersey city, city outside or... <laughs> Jersey City, somewhere right. outside of New York. Right. But it's clear that that's who he's talking about. And it struck me that when he's at the Silver Slipper in the 1920s, Jimmy Walker is probably somebody who's there all the time as yes. because he was famous for going to all the top speakeasies, which the Silver Slipper was one of those. Yeah, that's a great point. Jimmy Walker was probably there quite a bit. Yeah, he knew Jimmy Walker, at least was in the room with him, experienced him. Yeah, definitely. And it's interesting, the Romana Clay, we have Jimmy Walker is a clear reference, but also Gus Edwards in the world of like the stage mothers. There's a kind of Gus Edwards-like impresario in the novel. And of course, Ropes gives us a disclaimer. This is fiction. Nobody's based on any real people. And Gus Edwards is actually mentioned at one point just to further distance that. But it's daring. It's daring. And that Gus Edwards figure is not presented as being on the up and up either. No, <laughs> not at all. <laughs> these real people are still alive. They're still alive. When yeah. He's writing these Ropes novels. must have been afraid of litigation to some extent, but yeah. I think he. Which he, is why you yeah. put Gus Edwards in the novel as well, just make it clear. Well, that couldn't have been you because you're in the novel. But. Exactly. <laughs> We can only assume everybody knew what he was writing about. Yes. And when Stage Mother comes out in 1933, there'd been the Seabury trials. Jimmy Walker had resigned, right, out in, of the scandal. In disgrace. In, dis in total mean, forced, disgrace. Forced to resign or be exposed. Pretty much, yeah. He leaves office in total disgrace. A year later, there's this novel, and it's pretty, it's pretty clear. So he's really writing ripped from the headlines in many cases in terms of these characters and the subject matter that he's yes, writing about. Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah, which is fascinating. And again, as he weaves these various worlds together that he has personal experience with, he does that so artfully. It's quite a delicate dance. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> There's so much more to talk about, and we will indeed talk about it. And probably I'm most interested in the next novel that we'll talk about, which is Go Into Your Dance, which I found to be completely fascinating and have read actually twice now because I just found it so captivating and surprising in a way. Do you have a little uh, teaser? for us about that. Well, again, it's almost ripped from the headlines <laughs> in that the character of Ted Howard, who we, I say protagonist, but he's kind of an anti-hero. This character is a heel, you know, and is a not very likable character, but he's loosely based on George White of the George White scandals, although there are many other influences that Ropes is drawing upon. He never does simple biography or there's always mixing going on, right. but it's about the rise of Ted Howard from Messenger Boy to for to ultimately Broadway producer. And again, he goes into a partnership with a young woman, an ambitious young dancer named Nora Wayne. So we get aspects of the Marion Hamilton partnership, I think, in that as well. They have an interesting relationship romantically, professionally. Is that enough of a preview? I think that's great. It's a very complicated relationship, which I found so interesting. From her point of view, she's a very... Uh, 
How would you describe her as a character? She's smart, you know? Yes. <laughs> you know, you talk about performers going into show business quite young, and maybe they haven't had a lot of schooling. Nora is street smart. You know, she goes pretty much right into a career as a dancer in vaudeville. You know, I think from like the age of 16 is when she partners up with Ted. She's extremely streetwise and smart, and she's a talented dancer. She's beautiful, and she puts up with so much from this man who she kind of has not quite fully reciprocated romance with. She falls for him, but he's quite a skirt chaser. And I thought it was fascinating the way Ropes has portrayed her as smarter than Ted. Smarter than Ted, yes. <laughs> <laughs> right. When we return for the next episode of Broadway Nation, I can't wait to talk to you about Go Into Your Dance. Looking forward to it, David. Thank, Thank you, you so David. Much. If you a melancholy case of the blue, I've got a remedy for you. You've an ounce of rhythm down in your shoe. I'll change your point of view. If you've been singing a sad and blue song, say, go into your dance until you learn how to sing a new song. Go into your dance. Don't be complaining. Learn how to smile, and if it's raining, dance in the rain a while. As I said, Maya Cantu will be back on the next episode of Broadway Nation to talk about Grease Paint Puritan, Boston to 42nd Street in the queer backstage novels of Bradford Ropes. Now here's the information about how you too can become a patron of Broadway Nation. A donation of just $7 a month will not only keep Broadway Nation rolling along, it will also provide you with exclusive access to the complete unedited versions of many of the interviews that you hear on this podcast. And all patrons will receive special shout-outs and acknowledgments of your vital support for Broadway Nation. To join, simply go to broadwaynationpodcast.supercast.tech that's broadwaynationpodcast.supercast.tech. Or click the link in the show notes to this episode. Broadway Nation is written and produced by me, David Armstrong. Special thanks to Pals Mox for his help with editing this episode, and to the entire team at the Broadway Podcast Network. The world is going to be mine, mine, all mine. It's
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise. 